Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Season two of The Collective Tap is called Well to Table. It focuses on the role that water plays in the production of food and beverages in Indiana, everything from the field to the bottle. Join us as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, bring you conversations with the agricultural community in Indiana, commercial producers like Coca-Cola Consolidated and Ingredion, and the people behind some of our homegrown beer and spirits. In this episode, we talk with Josh Trameri with the Indiana Pork Producers Association and Kim Ferraro with the Hoosier Environmental Council. Recent polls suggest that somewhere around 90% of Americans eat meat. While meat consumption may or may not be in decline, Americans are nevertheless eating more meat than any time in our history. What is the impact to our waterways of raising all those pigs, chickens, and cows? First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Kim Ferraro, a senior staff attorney for the Hoosier Environmental Council. She discusses the impact of confined feeding operations on waterways, how regulations can fail to protect them, and what needs to change. As we get started here, can you go ahead and tell us your name and what you do? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Kim Ferraro, and I am the Senior Staff Attorney and the Director of Agricultural Policy at the Hoosier Environmental Council in Indiana. Excellent. So we are here today to talk about livestock and manure, (laughs) a thrilling subject. To get us started here, can you explain to us what a CFO or CAFO is and how water is used in them? A CFO um, stands for confined feeding operation. And there's another term that I'll use quite a bit, um, CAFO, C-A-F-O, which stands for concentrated animal feeding operation. And these are really regulatory terms um, that derive largely from the Clean Water Act, which is a federal statute that governs lots of things. The Clean Water Act considers CAFOs to be point sources and regulated under the Clean Water Act. A CFO or a confined feeding operation is really a term used in Indiana state regulation. And really the main difference would be the number of animals that are confined in a particular operation. The second part of your question is how is water used at a CAFO or a CFO? So I want a a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm a lawyer, right? I'm not a, I'm an environmental lawyer, so I know a little bit, Um, but I'm not a water quality expert or a water quantity expert. So what I'm going to be talking about is what I have gleaned um, from my roughly 10 years of experience in litigating cases surrounding CAFOs and CFOs. But generally, it's my understanding, and I'm going to actually collectively refer to CAFOs and CFOs as factory farms. Water at factory farms, um, there's a lot of it that gets used both directly and indirectly. Directly, water gets used to as drinking water for the animals. Also, water is used pretty extensively um, as process water. So to clean down the manure pits and the lagoons and the animal areas, you know, where they are confined for any number of things, especially in dairy, um, in milking 
you know, water gets used uh, when the cows are milked. So that would be some direct usages of water. An indirect one, though, which is huge and often not really associated with capos, is the amount of water that goes in to grow the feed, um, the vast amounts of corn and soy that get fed to factory farmed animals. I'm curious, like, is there a common type of case or thing that you're dealing with on a regular basis? There are common themes, for sure. These factory farms, and let's just define what a factory farm is. Most people think of farm. They think of old McDonald's farm where you've got, you know, animals roaming around in pasture and maybe there's some vegetable crops and, you know, corn, whatever. is a diversity of crops and livestock and vegetables or fruits being grown. So you know, red, little red barns, kind of a bucolic setting. Okay, we're not talking about that. A factory farm confines tens to hundreds of thousands of animals, not outside in confined spaces. We're talking about, uh, for example, hens that uh, lay eggs. They're often confined in battery cages that are no larger than a eight by 11 sheet of paper stacked, you know, feet high in these long warehouses. Uh, dairy cows, similarly, I have a case right now that's against a dairy capo that has more than 4,000 dairy cattle confined in it. Um, hogs, 10,000 hogs and up. So these are massive, massive numbers of animals um, confined. That's what we're talking about here. So the common theme, back to your question, is under current law, these factory farms are very minimally regulated under federal, state, and uh, local regulations. And they get treated like as if they were the bucolic farm of yesteryear. And they're often allowed to be sited right next to where established communities are um, as if they're a farm, as if they would not have any impact. And they're really big industry that has a huge impact on people's quality of life, on their air quality, air that they breathe. They pollute waterways very consistently, drinking water supplies, groundwater, and most rural communities rely on well water for their drinking water. So we see these, these issues get raised pretty consistently by the communities that are impacted um, when a new CAFO comes into their neighborhood. One thing I was very shocked to learn as I was preparing for this episode, I was reading up about livestock and waste manure. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, everyone. We're going to be talking about a lot of poop in this episode. A lot of poop. <laughs> a, lot a lot of poop. Of poop. Yeah. And I was really shocked to learn. Um, it was actually a study in 2018 released by the Hoosier Environmental Council that said that Indiana's livestock produces as much urine and feces as 87 million people, which mm -hmm. is like 14 times the state's total population. Where does that all go? Yeah, so that is, um, it is a startling statistic, isn't it? Um, unfortunately, our current regulations are really not dealing with it. Kind of going back to my earlier point, we're treating these factory farms as if, as if they are a normal farm instead of the industry with the industrial impacts that it actually has. So under current regulation, that waste is allowed to be stored in earthen lagoons, sounds like a really beautiful term, <laughs> you know, or ponds, pits. And, you know, that doesn't really describe what we're talking about here. These, um, this dairy capo that I was talking about earlier, it has a nine acre open air earth lagoon, earthen lagoon, unlined. So think about nine acres. That's 
uh, several football fields in size. So the waste just gets collected there. And when that waste builds up, they are allowed to um, spray it or land apply it with a machine untreated on surrounding land. And so what happens is, is when it rains, you know, that waste just runs right off into near beaches into the ground. Um, and so what we're finding is that that waste is finding its way into our waterways. And we know that because several government uh, pieces of data, but most recently IDEM's uh, 2020 Waters Impairment Report found that E. coli, which is from animal waste, it's a pathogen in animal waste, is the number one impairment of Indiana waterways. That's true nationwide in Midwest states. Um, e. coli is the number one contaminant. Some of that is human waste, but we know from items, uh, IDEM is our state agency, regulatory agency. Um, we know from their recent report that confined feeding operations are the number one source of that E. coli. That's what's happening. It's getting into our waterways. And, you know, ultimately, all of Indiana's waterways find its way to the Mississippi River. And we know that there's a big dead zone down in the Gulf of Mexico. That's uh, largely due to fertilizers that go to grow that all the feed that goes to feed the animals plus the waste itself is high in nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen, all of that, uh, you know, gets into our waterways, creating algae blooms and all sorts of hypoxic conditions in our waterways um, that is bad for aquatic life and for us. We asked IDEM to be on this episode and they did decline. Um, and so we sent them some questions and they provided some answers for us. And one thing that they talked about in their answers was about the proper setbacks for CFOs that they have um, setbacks of a thousand feet from public water supplies and 300 feet from private wells and waterways. They also talked about sites being inspected for compliance issues. Those were a lot of the regulations that they were talking about in their responses. Are those regulations enough? No. Categorically, no. And here's why. So think about 300 feet. It's not that much. <laughs> Especially it doesn't consider slope. So 300 feet going downhill, right? That's going to go right into the waterway. That 300 foot setback does not take in consideration the size, nature of the operation itself. So it can be a thousand head hog operation or it could be a 10,000 head hog operation, still 300 feet. So the setbacks are cookie cutter that aren't taking into consideration um, the unique site conditions and the operation itself. That's the number one problem. Um, the other problem is, and we're just looking at water. So I'm not talking about all the quality of life issues. That, um, you know, there's four, only a 400 foot setback from a house. Imagine that. So sticking with water, um, there are also no regulations whatsoever, federal, state, or local, on a CAFO's air emissions. Now, what goes up must come down. So if you've got a lot of ammonia going up into the air, which we know happens at these facilities, that is finding its way back into our waterways and turning into ammonia nitrate, which is deadly for fish. The other issue is that the state CFO rule, which is what IDEM would be enforcing, places no limits or standards on E. coli and other pathogens. What the regulation requires is that when these facilities 
dispose of the waste on land, they have to apply it at what's called an agronomic rate for phosphorus. That simply means that they have to do soil tests that say that there's not, that the soil could absorb that, that phosphorus and use it for plant growth doesn't consider whether there's too many pathogens in the soil, whether there's too much E. coli in the soil, whether there's, uh, you know, too many antibiotics that are fed to these animals that it's making with, you know, all of this stuff that we know is in the waste, that is not considered at all in items regulation. So then the final thing you said, item what talked about its inspections, that's only required by the rule once every five years. Even if you have full compliance with those meager regulations, that doesn't equal protection, right? So they can say, yeah, we go out and inspect these things once every five years. And we found this, all of these CAFOs are in compliance, but compliance with a 300 foot setback that's not concerned with regulating E. coli doesn't really mean much. Yeah, no, that was really helpful. I think it's a little bit shocking to hear that there aren't more regulations Mm -hmm. for literal poo. (laughs) Um, Yeah being held in open pits and put on land. So that's a little concerning. (laughs) It's very concerning because, you know, another, just to uh, put a fine point on that, humans are animals, just like livestock are animals. Our poop is the same. It has the same bad stuff in it. Yet we would never think about emptying our toilets out on our neighbor's lawn, right? Or emptying our septic tanks, just spreading that waste, you know, around our neighborhood. All of our waste gets sent to a a wastewater treatment plant. It's the same waste, yet we're allowing one type of it where we're producing a a ton more of it to not be treated at all um, before it's released into the environment. And that's the essence of the problem. So all those things that you just talked about are happening right now. Mm -hmm. If things don't change about the way we regulate all of this, what sort of future do we have ahead of us, say, 10, 20, 50 years, if this continues? I think common sense would dictate if we allow an already bad condition to continue, then it's just going to get worse. We're seeing increasing fish kills every summer. Uh, IDEM and DNR and our State Department of Public Health, they test for blue-green algae, which is the cyanobacteria that's really toxic to fish and to humans and animals if you drink it. Uh, you can't swim in it. You know, it causes rashes and all sorts of other stuff. Anyway, more and more of our lakes are unswimmable. You know, beaches, we can't recreate in them because of these algal plumes every summer. I mean, it's not a very specific answer, but my answer is it's just going to keep getting worse if we don't fix it. And ultimately, we're going to pay that in terms of our drinking water, increased costs to clean it. We're already seeing that as well. Utilities having to spend a lot more money to get that stuff out of our drinking water. More and more people getting sick, inability to fish and swim and enjoy nature. So, I mean, it's not a pretty picture. What does need to happen to change those regulations? Are there individual things that people can do or collective things that people can do to help change the state of our regulations? I want to back up for a minute. Um, We've talked about state regulation, but there's a problem at the federal level too. You know, Indiana is not alone in this problem. All of the Midwest states, big ag states, have a high number of factory farms in them. And at the federal level, I think I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, a CAFO is a term that comes from the Clean Water Act. So when the Clean Water Act was enacted 
way long ago, back in the 70s, CAFOs were considered an entity or a facility that was required to get a Clean Water Act permit. Over time, through federal court decisions brought by the industry challenging EPA's authority to regulate, authority has been essentially gutted. So EPA, of the universe of 25,000 or so CAFOs that there are in the nation, EPA has authority over less than 4,000 of them now because of this right, you know, lack of authority. The other problem is, is that because these factory farms are owned by large corporate conglomerates like Tyson, JBS, um, you know, the industry is becoming highly concentrated and there's an unfair marketplace for small diversified farmers, which is what we need to have back, right? We need a regional local food system where we have farmers using regenerative sustainable practices in order to get ourselves out of that. So it's not just regulating CAFOs better, it's undoing the massive subsidies and, and enforcing antitrust laws so that we can break up these big monopolies, these big ag monopolies that are controlling our food system. So yes, we need to regulate CAFOs better, close those gaps in all of the ways that I mentioned, but we also need to break up the monopolies and create a level playing field for small, diversified, sustainable farmers so that they can um, make a living and compete. People certainly should be getting involved in letting their lawmakers, federal and state, know that they care very deeply about this issue and they want to see policy change. I would tell people to go to HEC's website if you want to learn about specific policies that they could advocate for. But the other thing is that we all can take personal action. We don't have to wait for policy change. We can vote with our food dollars, right? We don't have to uh, buy our meat, dairy, and poultry products from big box stores. We can buy them from local sustainable farmers that are doing good things and reduce that demand for factory farm food. And ultimately, given climate change, we also know that our meat and dairy consumption is now roughly 18% of the greenhouse gases that are contributing to climate change. So whether we're eating meat sustainably or from a factory farm, we ultimately are going to have to reduce our consumption. I'm not necessarily advocating. I'm vegetarian. That's a personal choice. I'm not saying everybody needs to be, but it's a, it's a huge impact, environmental impact to reduce the amount of, of meat um, that we're consuming. From my understanding, it sounds like like there is a reason why they're applying manure to the fields, right? They're doing it to help with growing their crops, providing food for people, which is important. Is there a way to get those same benefits while mitigating the risk of non-point pollution from that manure? Well, first, I want to dispel what you said sounds re reasonable. Sure. <laughs> but that's not actually what's happening. When waste is land applied, it's typically to fields that are not used to grow crops. So another piece of this problem is that those vast monocrops of corn and soy that you see, they're using chemical fertilizers on those fields. They're not taking the waste and using that. I mean, it does happen, but it's much cheaper. There's no requirement those crops are owned by a whole different entity. You know, Monsanto has, you know, huge, vast fields of corn and soy. So does, you know, all of these big corporations. So the CAFOs are their own thing and they buy land, surrounding land. But this is waste that's dumped. They say they're using it as fertilizer, but that is not the reality. There's no requirement that they do it. It's much cheaper for them to just spread it. 
There's no requirement that it be used for fertilizer in any way. So that's just a big myth. And so then the problem is, is that it gets concentrated on the same field. If they treated this as a marketable commodity that was worth something, you would see this not being a problem because they'd be making money off of it, right? And it would be taken and used where it was needed. And we wouldn't be uh, having this problem with chemical fertilizers. Once waste, and again, I'm being a lawyer here and maybe speaking outside my lane, but my understanding is that once waste sits in a lagoon for six months, the nutrient content that's beneficial to plants, it loses that. It off-gasses. All those nutrients go into the air. Farmers that want to use um, you know, organic cow poop, for example, they're not, they don't want it from a lagoon, a waste lagoon, they're gonna have cows roaming in pasture, doing their natural thing. That's how you get that benefit. And that's a regenerative livestock practice. Have um, your cows on you know, rotational fields so that they're naturally fertilizing the ground, not with CAFO waste. Next is Josh Torneri, the executive director of the Indiana Pork Producers Association. We discuss how livestock are raised in modern agricultural systems, how their manure is managed, and how operators approach threats to our waterways. Before we get started, we want to let you know that we had some audio issues with Taz and Devin's mics. You may hear a buzzing when they speak. We apologize for the interference, but hope you're still able to enjoy the conversation. I'm Josh Trenary. I'm the executive director of the Indiana Pork Producers Association. So we have sort of two arms to the organization. One side does policy regulatory issues, things like that. And then the other side does promotion, education, and research. And then we have national affiliates that are split similarly. We've been learning over the past few months about the different roles that water plays. And uh, one of them, which we want to talk to you about today, is the role water plays in agricultural settings, including you know, the raising of livestock. Most people probably know that farms aren't the way they used to be. Could you explain a little bit of what farming looks like now and why it looks that way? Livestock agriculture used to be, you know, a few animals or a few of different types of animals, you know, on on small farms. And, and as people have begun to specialize, those have consolidated. If you consider the pork industry, there's farrowing where the sows give birth to the baby pigs, and then you raise the baby pigs until they can be weaned. And then there's a period of time, what we call a feeder pig, between wean to finish, or wean to feeder stage, and then the feeder to finish stage. So there's different types of production, and over time, different farms have specialized into those different types of production. So where before you would have had a few sows, you'd raise baby pigs, you'd raise them up to, you know, you'd wean them, raise them up to feeder pig weight, and then move them to another barn on that same farm to finish them out to take them to market. Each one of those steps in the production process has been specialized, and so you have larger farms that are that one thing is their specialty and they do it there. And I'm sure that some of that specialization is because we, as a country, just eat a lot more meat, and so more meat is needed. Well, I can only judge by, you know, the growth we see in Indiana. So for the pork industry in Indiana, we had 3.35 million pigs in inventory in the year 2000, and we're up to 4.35 million now. We're the fourth largest pork producing state in the country. We've definitely seen some, some growth. So it's four million plus pigs. That's a lot of manure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
how do people deal with that much um, pig poop? So if you think to the type of operation I was talking about before where it was smaller scale, you'd have you know, a building doing each of those different functions in the production process, all, you know, maybe sitting on the same farm or a couple different farms owned by the same people. And now you specialize in bigger facilities all down the line. So if you have a little separate building doing each segment of production, then you've got a little bit of manure storage in each of those buildings and you have to manage that accordingly. Indiana's had a permitting structure for livestock since the 70s. Indiana started a permitting system for livestock operations even before there was a Clean Water Act federally. You can look back in old records from the Department of Environmental Management and, and see barns that, you know, small-scale barns like that, that were getting permitted for 30 days of manure storage or 60 days of manure storage or 90 days of manure storage. And, you know, so every month or two months or three months, you're having to make decisions to figure out, you know, what you're going to do with that manure and where to put it. Well, there's a ton of cropland in Indiana, and, and it all gets fertilizer. And it's either going to get commercial fertilizer that's imported here, or it can get manure. If you can recycle the nutrients here that are coming out of those barns and apply them to farm fields here to be used, then you can supplant some of that commercial fertilizer that you would otherwise have to bring. The crops are going to get fertilized either way. It's just what you use. If you think back to those small barns, with that small amount of manure storage, there's only certain times of the year where it's gonna be practical to use that manure for uptake by a crop. You wanna be able to apply the manure when it's gonna do the most good for the crop. And that's not having to deal with what to do with manure every one month or two months or three months. You know, modern permitting system in Indiana for larger buildings, they would require 180 days of storage instead of the, you know, the 30, 60, or 90. But then for, at least for the pork industry, our typical threshold for the type of barns that, that we design is 300 days. What they want to try to do is be able to land apply out of one big barn once a year before you plant a crop so that it, the most of the nutrients can get utilized by the crop as possible. And if you have 300 days of storage, you sort of have ultimate flexibility of, of when to do that. So we've heard from different people about this issue of what to do with all this manure. And we've heard from some people that, you know, it gets applied to fields that are growing crops. Um, we've heard that it gets applied to fields that aren't growing crops. So it just gets sprayed to get rid of it. Is there ever manure that's left over? What are the crops that this manure is getting applied to? Is there data around what's happening with it? Manure has nutrients in it, mostly nitrogen and phosphorus, and that's going to aid in any growing crop. And typically, the manure is going to get land applied before you plant a crop. So, the, I mean, the claim of you know, manure getting applied to a field before there's a crop on it, that's true. That's that's when you would do it. You know, there's many different crops that it would benefit. I mean, the most you would hear from around here, the predominant crops, you know, in Indiana are corn and soybeans, but obviously there's other uses for that, for that manure too. There are instances where, you know, some barns land apply manure, inject it into the ground or surface apply it. And then there's other barns that I, th I think what you were alluding to was like spray irrigation of manure, which is out of a lagoon system typically, so outdoor containment where the manure is much more dilute. And so the rates of application would be different because that manure is much more dilute. There's still a permit system in Indiana for any barn, for us, for pork, any barn 600 head and up 
has to have a permit. And so there are requirements built into that permit where you have to have a manure test that shows the nutrient content of the manure. And then you have to have a soil test that shows the nutrient content of the soil. And then you have to make sure that you judge what your anticipated yield would be off the crop that you intend to plant. And then whatever you know, concentration of nutrients are then the manure you tested. So you have to take into account what you think the yield of your crop is going to pull off of that ground nutrient-wise, what kind of nutrients are in your manure, and what nutrients are already in the soil, and then you calculate all that out and make sure you don't overapply. The nice thing about this system is commercial fertilizer is so expensive that it kind of benefits the farmer to stretch the manure as much as they can over as many acres as they can because it's less commercial fertilizer they have to buy. We also you know, read a recent report from the Indianapolis Star talking about how Indiana has some of the worst water in the country. And it, it does, you know, place some of the blame onto agriculture, specifically looking at E. coli and other bacteria that is commonly found um, in manure. How are livestock operators addressing the challenge of keeping manure from getting into the waterways? Some of the numbers in the Star article are that way because our Department of Environmental Management actually does a really good job sampling as compared to other states. IDEM in Indiana is sampling um, for certain Clean Water Act programs, and they just, they happen to get through a much larger percentage of the streams in this state than a lot of other states get to. And so that just on its face, since there's a larger sample size, you know, makes makes the numbers look different from many other states because they're testing a lot more water. The frustration we have sometimes is that, especially like for E. coli impairment and things like that, is item doesn't speciate samples. In fact, it's really hard to pinpoint the sources of any kind of contamination. You know, whether it's a failed rural septic system or an issue with you know sewer overflows from a nearby town, or surface runoff from, you know, some kind of wildlife or some animals that aren't restricted out of the stream or land application of manure nearby, it's hard to differentiate between those. But I will say that I know one rule of thumb that they use is if there's a barn, if there's a confined feeding operation within 500 miles of where they're taking the sample, they can attribute that to a CAFO and and often do. And I'm not sure that's fair since we're land applying at agronomic rates and we're not necessarily land applying that manure to right where that barn is in the first place. You see what I mean? The the barns don't discharge from the production site. The, yeah. the manure stays there in a sealed concrete pit until it's pulled out mm -hmm. to be land applied at an agronomic rate at a field. So yeah, we get frustrated with those stats from time to time for sure. You know, E. coli is, it's a cheap and easy thing to test for. Some strains of E. coli are harmful to humans, some aren't. But it's an easy, cheap way to test for impairment because the presence of E. coli in a stream sample is an indicator of fecal contamination where there might be other things in it that's harmful to humans. And so I kind of call it the, you know, the Kleenex of bacteria. It's sort of the, it's sort of the, the catch-all. It's the one people, you know, people refer to because it is easy and cheap to test for and it's a good indicator of overall impairment. But for us, we have to land apply at the agronomic rate so we're not over-applying. There's actually recommendations from the Natural Resources Conservation Service about how far away when you land apply manure you have to be from certain water features to further prevent from that type of contamination. And in Indiana, it's actually required that 
a permitted operation follow those recommendations. Would you mind clarifying what a CAFO is? A CAFO is a federal term for a concentrated animal feeding operation. The federal threshold that would be used for pigs to define that term is above 2,499 head. In Indiana, it's a little more complicated. So anything over 600 head in Indiana is called a confined feeding operation. So regardless of size, whether you're CAFO size or not, in Indiana, you're a confined feeding operation that has a permit if you're over 600 head. Other than relative size, the term really doesn't have much meaning in Indiana because nobody has a federal permit in Indiana for a CAFO because in order to have to have that, you would have to have an active ongoing discharge off our production sites. But we keep our manure in sealed concrete pits and it's only land applied when it's pulled out to be applied to a field at an agronomic rate. I wanted to go back just real quick to something you said earlier. You mentioned that these operations have to be a certain distance away from water features. We deal predominantly with liquid manure. Our manure is 80 some percent water. If you're surface applying liquid manure, which few people do anymore, you've got to be 500 feet from a public water supply, according to NRCS, 100 feet from surface waters, 100 feet from sinkholes, 100 feet from wells, 100 feet from any drainage inlet, and 50 feet from property lines and 50 feet for public roads. And that's not necessarily for water quality issues. That's just a, a recommendation from NRCS. So then IDEM then codifies all of that. Some of our previous guests have said that our regulations for livestock manure are inadequate to protect water supplies. Is that something that you agree with or disagree with? I, I, I mean, I'd be interested in knowing the, the basis for the claims, I guess. I mean, we have engineers on staff at IDEM that review the permits. We use the NRCS recommendations for how to apply the manure. We apply it agronomic rates to ensure we don't overapply. And then on our side of things, the producers hire their own environmental consultants and engineers when they prepare the permits, the operating permits, and the construction permits. The way you operate the facility, including a manure application, is reviewed by environmental consultants and engineers in the planning phase. All that gets checked by the regulatory authorities in Indiana, including the engineers on their staff, and then they match it all up and we move forward if there is an issue of concern for a particular site, a lot of times IDEM will require some sort of monitoring, at least on an interim basis, to make sure once it's up and running, there's not some flaw in the site that's gonna cause a problem, cause manure to leave the site. If the Department of Environmental Management thinks there is a risk to surface water or to groundwater, you know, specific to a certain site, they can require monitoring either through test wells or testing the liquid that or the water that shows up in a perimeter drain around the site. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that's adequate oversight. <laughs> it feels like there's some tension between some environmental groups, between farmers. How do you think we can all work together to meet those same goals? There's a lot of organizations that interface, you know, with different groups than we do. And so collaboration amongst all those groups is is helpful. So I mean the thing that we're members of, the Indiana Agriculture Nutrient Alliance, I think you've I think you've interviewed Ben Wicker for this did, for this yeah. series. Uh, we place a lot of importance on that group because it it has got us talking to organizations that are for focused more on water and nutrient issues than we had ever talked to in the past. And it's and it's also got researchers talking 
and thinking in the same direction. And, and I think that will head toward those goals too, because there are researchers that have credibility with industry. There's researchers that have credibility with environmental groups, and then, you know, a mix between the two. And we've, you know, we've been frustrated over the years that researchers can come at this issue or this set of issues, I guess, from a lot of different angles. And maybe the most important thing that the Indian Ag Nutrient Alliance has been able to do is get all those folks in a room and get them talking and thinking in the same direction. I can't understate how important of a victory it was to get five different universities and a bunch of other organizations that work in this space to mutually agree on a path forward on what pieces of the science we're missing and we still need to find, and then how to proceed with how we're going to monitor things and test for things and, and estimate and measure our reductions over time. Because before that, everybody was coming at a little different angle of it. And so if you're looking at one set of data as an environmental group, or you're looking at somebody else's research as Indiana pork, you're going to see two different things. You get all those people communicating and moving down the same path then we ought to ultimately get to a place where we're sort of crunching these numbers the same way and maybe we can get some of those some of those barriers down. Are there any alternatives to confined operations and what does the future of livestock look like? Confined operations are consistently being improved and the efficiencies that you can gain either through genetics so the pigs grow differently or more efficiently or nutrition what you're how you're structuring the feed rations to change things around developments in barn design can help get things more efficient you know the industry's goal is to you know make these things as efficient as possible because it's good for profitability and it also decreases the environmental footprint which is something our customers are very interested in as well they, they want the meat but they also want you know they don't want a huge impact on the environment and so that will continue to be a factor as we evolve over time there will always be a place for confined production because it's the most efficient way to produce a pound of pork Consumers have other, you know, factors that they would like to consider. Maybe they just generally don't like the idea of a confined feeding facility. Maybe they want, you know, a specialized type of pork that isn't efficient, so it's not going to be something that someone with a, you know, a large confinement barn is going to want to raise. And so there's all kinds of niche producers out there that can serve those needs, but you want to be able to provide unique products with certain characteristics that people like. It's gonna be at a higher price, but you wanna be able to service that market. But you also wanna be able to service the market that is, you wants to buy protein for their family when they go to Walmart. There's always, ideally there would always be a combination of both in my mind. Water is vital for bringing food and beverages to our tables, which means it is also an essential part of Indiana's economy and quality of life. Coming up next in this season of The Collective Tap, we will take a look at the commercial food and beverage production industry, as well as the local beer and spirits scene. A quick note, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM, oversees permitting for confined feeding operations. We asked IDEM to appear on the podcast, and they declined due to time constraints. IDEM did provide written responses to a few questions, and you can find those on our website at thecollectivetap.com. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.